You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Ariana Roos. I'm Sam Dolby. I'm Gunish Ishiksel. Um, And today we are joined by Dr. Michael Talbot, who's a postdoctoral researcher on the Mediterranean Reconfigurations Project at the University of Paris One. And today's podcast will be talking about commerce and law in the Ottoman maritime space in the 18th century. Um, Michael, it is about time that we have you on the podcast (laughs) because... um, you know, you're a, a very important contributor to other Ottoman history podcast offshoots, notably to Azusa of Rock. Um, and so we're really happy to finally have you here. Welcome. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here at last. To get started, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your dissertation and your upcoming book? I know you work on the history of Anglo-Ottoman relations in the 18th century with a specific focus on commerce. Um, can you give us a general sense of the contours of Anglo-Ottoman relationships in this period? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the book project, which, as you say, stems from the, the doctoral research, um, looks at um, Ottoman-British relations in the 18th century in terms of the relationship between commerce and diplomacy. So not just looking at um, commerce or diplomacy in isolation, but bringing the two together. This is mainly because um, during this period, indeed from the late 16th century until the first years of the 19th century, the British embassy in Istanbul was run by a private commercial company, the Levant Company. As a result of this, we have a a huge amount of documentation um, in both the British and the Ottoman archives that demonstrate, perhaps unlike any other embassy, um, the relationship between um, commercial interests and diplomatic practice. Um, so the book, which comes from the thesis, does this in, in three major ways. So I first of all look at the Ahname, the capitulations, um, from the Ottoman text's perspective, um, uh, which surprisingly hadn't really been done since Susan Skilleter was writing um, all those decades ago. Um, and there are significant differences in between the two texts. So the way that the British translated the Ottoman text um, is quite different in many ways to the original Ottoman sense, which inevitably created various disagreements. The second part of the project looks at um, gifts. Um, gifts were an important expression of um, Ottoman diplomatic practice, but also provided the British with an opportunity to market their own goods. So essentially they had to conform to Ottoman diplomatic practices, which involve giving various garments at certain set occasions, audiences with the Sultan, the various Bayram, and so forth. But rather than um, taking this um, too badly, they instead made the garments out of British cloth. Um, They tried to give British clocks and watches as a way to improve their commercial standing. The final part of the book um, looks at commercial disputes and their resolution, particularly going through the vast body of Takrirs um, in the Ottoman archives. So these kind of representations from the ambassador to the Ottoman government that deals with a whole variety of um, commercial as well as diplomatic disputes. What really, um, I don't know, strikes me in listening to your description of your book project is the relationship between diplomacy and commerce 
And particularly when we think about what sorts of bodies can participate in diplomacy and what sorts of bodies can participate in commerce, um, you mentioned that the British embassy was was controlled by the finance controlled by the Levant company. And we think this would be a joint stock company, right? It started off as it was joint stock, stock company. And so and so I I suppose I I wonder um if and how that that influences diplomacy mm. um between the the Ottoman government and and the British Embassy, particularly yeah. when you talked about with giving gifts, they had to conform to Ottoman diplomatic practices. Does it get an get, does it get murky because of this sort of you know um, not quite state or quasi state yeah. um, entity? Yeah, murky is definitely one way to to put it. I mean, if you look at the the diplomatic correspondence, it's, it's basically this kind of extended dirge complaining about the lack of of money. And one of the ways I tried to think about this in the in the book is what I call this kind of cycle of necessity. So the ultimate aim is that the British merchants can trade in the Ottoman Empire successfully. In order to do that, the um, ambassador has to represent their problems at the sublime port. In order for that to happen, he has to participate in these conventions, which means buying the gifts. In order for that, he needs the money. And in order for that to happen, the Levin company needs to give him money. They only get money from the merchants, and so there we get back to the beginning. They only get money if the merchants are successful. If at any point that cycle breaks down, then the whole thing gets into trouble. And there are various points in the 18th century, particularly during conflicts with France, when British um, trade is detrimentally uh, affected um, by attacks on their ships and by the closing of the Mediterranean in many respects, then there's simply not enough money coming into the embassy. So the ambassador himself goes personally into debt um, or he has to take out loans. And in fact, in my analysis of the um, the embassy accounts, a huge percentage, sometimes up to 20%, was financing loans to pay for the basic expenditure at the embassy. So yes, having this commercial relationship, on the one hand, it looks good in theory for the, for the merchants, but from a financial perspective, it, it really is problematic. And this is why the main reason in, in 1804 that the British government takes over, because from the mid-1760s, they were bailing out the Levant Company on an almost annual basis. Parliament was paying thousands of pounds. And so in the end, they thought, well, we might as well just do it ourselves. So I'm absolutely fascinated by by this relationship between commerce and diplomacy that you're describing. Was it unusual for an embassy to be to be controlled by a by a company in this period, or is this um, a pretty regular occurrence in, in British international relations? I mean, if you look into the earlier years of Britain going abroad, if you like. Um, pretty much every single embassy was run by a company like this. So the Muscovy Company, the Barbary Company, and of course, the very most famously, the East India Company. What's different about this is, is that it's essentially a major European power that they're dealing with. The Ottomans are one of the premier embassies on the English diplomatic list, yet it's still as late as the Napoleonic Wars being run by this company. And that's what makes it exceptional from a British perspective. Other countries, the Swedes, the French, made use of private commercial organisations in their dealings with Islamic powers in particular. But again, not to the same extent, not for such high stake embassies and not so late. So so one thing I wonder, um, given this relationship between commerce and, and how and diplomacy in that, it was quite common, you're saying, for um, 
for merchants to be involved in diplomatic practices. Um, were there ever moments where there is a conflict of interest between what the government wanted and what the merchants wanted? Mm. And and if so, how did that get resolved? Absolutely. I mean, um, the biggest conflict in terms of state policy and, and commercial interests that I found in the Ottoman British case is the sending of British privateers to the Mediterranean during their wars with France. These privateers tackle, I mean, I'm talking really in the 18th century, they tackle um, French shipping indiscriminately. So it doesn't matter if the French ship is carrying French goods or North African goods or Ottoman goods, um, they will target it. And that, of course, means that there's lots and lots of Ottoman merchants suffering as a result. And the threat of commercial sanctions, that, that merchants' petitions won't be heard, that they won't be dealt with fairly, is strong enough to induce um, action from the British government. So this kind of foreign policy very often does conflict um, with um, commercial interest. And the prime example of that was the first war between the Brits and the, and the Ottomans um, uh, um, from um, 1807 until 1809, when the British community is in fact ejected in, in many respects from Istanbul. It flees, um, they lose all their possessions, they lose all their goods, all for a very ill-conceived foreign policy objective. So in terms of that, yes, there's plenty of examples of, of Crown and company clashing in their interests when it comes to, to commerce, absolutely. And I wonder too, what were the implications, if any, of the merchants' role in diplomacy with the Ottomans? Um, did the Ottoman state take it as a sign of disrespect, for example, um, that they weren't formal ambassadors? Yes, absolutely. Um, and there's, there's plenty of examples in the Ottoman side of the correspondence um, complaining that that the ambassador is not a bezade, he's not a gentleman, um, he's a he's a he's a merchant. Um, these are um, very rarely done in public. These sorts of rebukes, but it's clear that the Ottomans know the sorts of, of people that are being sent to them. Um, if we look at the st the start of the period that I look at, which is the late seventeenth century, so the resumption of relations after the, the, the crown is restored in, in England. The first ambassador that's sent is an earl, a pretty senior earl at that, the Earl of Winchelsea. And just a few decades after that, we're seeing ordinary merchants being sent. And the Ottomans don't like that very much. However, there was good reason for this, and that's because they sent commercial merchants out at a time of commercial trouble. So, um, a commercial ambassador, sorry. So if we have a, an ambassador that knows business better than some aristocrat would, then that's obviously going to be better for the merchants. But at the same time, for the prestige of the embassy, it's it's not great. And I wonder too um, if this decision to to send merchants as diplomatic representatives um, had any negative impact on Britain's relationship with the Ottoman Empire compared to other states mm. that were that were dealing with the Ottoman Empire, for example. Um, I know, I think it was in the 1760s, um, France had sent, um, the, the main representative for France in the Ottoman Empire wasn't technically an ambassador. He was some sort of um, extraordinary envoy, I mm. believe. Um, and the Ottomans took this as a great sign of disrespect mm. and, it, and it caused a lot of disruption in the Franco-Ottoman diplomatic relationship. Mm. Um, and so I guess I just suppose if, um, if they took it as a sign of disrespect that the British were, were sending merchants, do you think that it hurt their position, mm. maybe strategically or diplomatically in the region? Uh, to some extent. I, I think 
really what what struck me the most about the research was how even those sorts of ambassadors by conforming to the sorts of social conventions that were expected of them making personal relationships with the key figures in government giving the appropriate gifts at the appropriate time they were just as able even if they were of low birth as one might say at the time to to interact and to, to be successful as much as someone of, of of a higher social standing when it comes to to comparisons with the other states around this again rather than the question of the person of the ambassador comes down to a question of finance simply put the french being sponsored by the french government the habsburgs being sponsored by their imperial government can throw as much money essentially at things as as they like whereas the british are constrained in that regard so although we can't say necessarily that British policy in the Ottoman Empire was overwhelmingly successful in the 18th century, they do a pretty good job considering their, their financial constraints. Michael, I wanted to ask about translation. Mm. You mentioned how there are actually big differences between the Ottoman and, and English or, or whatever the uh, copy that the British were using was, was written in. Mm. Uh, what, do, what does that look like? It can be from quite subtle things um, in terms of the tone that's used. So when it's translated it's meant to be seen it's meant to be seen in the english version as a bilateral treaty so it gets rid of any sense that it's an ottoman ahname that's been gifted um by the grace of the sultan there are several um articles where the language is pretty clear in the ottoman version but pretty obscure in the english version when, particularly when it comes to violence uh, committed so the ottoman says the ottoman version specifically says that no violence at all may be committed by anyone ottomans and british whereas the british version will only say that the ottomans may not commit any violence so it's those kinds of subtle things the capitulations however are not a reflection of the quality of translation that goes on in the wider diplomatic sense the british translators who of course are um, Italian-speaking Levantine Ottoman subjects um, are pretty good. I mean, we've got some wonderful examples in the National Archives in London of copybooks where we have the Ottoman and the Italian side by side, so we can see their process. We can see, f comparing the British and the Ottoman archives um, on Takriz, that they managed to translate the essence of texts whilst also culturally translating them. So if you have some bombastic demand from a British ambassador, he will translate it into Ottoman to make it as humble and subservient as it should be as a petition. So that is really important, I think, in thinking about the question of translation. And it sounds like the translators have uh, quite a bit of power. Oh, well, absolutely, absolutely. Again, on this question of translation, I know that in the 18th century, French was the language of diplomacy within the European system mm. of states. And um, I wonder if if this was something that was even discussed in the um, Anglo-Ottoman relationship about whether or not to use this common diplomatic language mm. in their in their treaties with each other or or if there are other examples of um, of treaties where there are similar problems of translation mm. the question of French is an interesting one because it kind of sneaks it its way in at the end of the the 18th century and become does but it doesn't really become standard until sort of the 1820s 1830s as the main diplomatic language and there's not very much of a discussion over italian um for various reasons i mean um earlier on in the period those who were literate in latin could bumble their way through italian i mean it was it was fairly simple stuff if even if they didn't have any latin um, they seem to have had sufficient trust in their in their translators that, that they would get the job done. Some of the ambassadors who did have Italian did try and look at 
the drafts and that's where you get the kind of the interesting complaints why are you saying that i'm a petitioner a humble petitioner i'm not i'm the ambassador of, of britain you should reflect this so yeah the question of, of, of italian versus french is an interesting one I've, I've not seen any particular desire on the part of anyone really to to switch um to french in terms of other um translation issues in, in my current project which which is looking at um commercial space and litigation in Ottoman Algiers in the same period with regards to Europeans. I've just been going through, actually yesterday, um, the treaty um, between the Algerians and, and the French regarding the setting up of a, of a commercial colony called Bastion de France. And again, the French version is so radically different in many ways to the original Ottoman version. I mean, they just insert cheeky um, clauses that never existed in the Ottoman sense, and and completely twist the meanings. and And um, this is why the disputes are so complicated to solve because they've both got one copy each of this text that they assume says the same thing, but of course, there's radically different things in many cases. And so, how would they solve it when a dispute arose? Do you have any examples of um, of how they work this out? Well, again, this comes down to the question of which translator knows the, the, the corpus of literature better. So in the um, British Takrirs, for example, um, in the original English version, they wouldn't, it would just be a, a rant that this has happened and I want it sorted. The translators then go through and they think, well, how can we back this up legally? So they'll go to the Ottoman version of the text and they'll say, right, in the Dutch capitulations of this year, it says this. And in the Venetian capitulations of this year, it says that. And therefore, we have a case like this. So, again, it relies very much on the on the legal knowledge of the translators of the Ottoman text. And in many ways, the European version is not quite as relevant in such circumstances. And so were, were Ottoman legal scholars um, immersed in the same sort of literature? Or did they have access to the same sort of documents to make to make their claims Sure. I mean, when it, when it comes to, to legal scholars, I mean, when particularly in, in cases with like the British attacks on Ottoman shipping, um, as well as quoting the capitulations, there will also be um, parts of the Sharia quoted, um, um, particularly with regards to this idea of, of, of theft, of the usurpation of goods and things like that. Um, so there are certain instances where something can be both contrary to the capitulations and contrary to Islamic law, and therefore um, the Ottomans have the upper hand on that. Um, but on the whole, um, if we then look at the translators of the imperial government, they are very, very much um, um, aware of the different sorts of texts um, swimming around that would be useful for them to, to make their case heard, absolutely. And so in resolving these disputes, um, would you would you say that there ever arose problems um, because perhaps there wasn't a shared legal tradition between the British mm. and the Ottomans. And so whereas when the British are treating with other European powers, they have a similar um, foundation of mm -hmm. natural law and positive law mm -hmm. to, to draw on and make their arguments. And if the Ottomans don't have access to the same mm. legal corpus or they're just speaking in a different legal language, mm. um, what, what does that look like? How does that get yeah. resolved? That's a really interesting question. Or also, if the English didn't know about the Ottoman law, if they if they don't have access to that, I would say complicate a bit the question. And what if the Ottoman translators themselves don't or quite don't know what was the Ottoman uh, Islamic law? 
because the translators are normally uh, are Christians mm-hmm. and they wouldn't or how did they what was their dealings with the Shehul Islams and mm-hmm. other in me hierarchy as the Kazakhs did they have the or what were what were their intermediaries intermediaries in the formulation of the this what was what can be called quite harshly because it doesn't exist i think the ottoman interstate law or because it's between the translators mm-hmm. from one sense and then the on the whole divan so there's the grand vizierate mm-hmm. and the offices which is uh, related to him and uh, on the other hand the uh, ilmiye mm-hmm. so w- w- which represents or which is the bearers of the islamic law so it's another complication from either from the ottomans who wouldn't or who who sometimes can have access to the some developments in the uh, european law in the especially in the 18th century since some dogmas were educated in mm-hmm. bologna or in uh, or in padova that that's the case for the mauro cordato family so i think they've had some in some extent access to issues on the uh, on the transformation of the use cantum etc so they were i think aware a bit but we don't have in any case some concrete data on it this it this this is the one part of the problem so we don't know if the ottomans or how ottomans were aware of what's going on especially in the second half of the 17th and in the 18th century on the transformation of the youth cantum on the other hand the question arose by sam on the europeans perceptions and knowledge of the ottoman law and on the third level and i think it's quite important as well problems within the ottoman uh, imperial administrative framework so mm-hmm. it would be a quite a <laughs> <laughs> difficult <laughs> question to uh, tackle on i think indeed well that's what they pay me for i suppose mm-hmm. um okay with regards to to your comment gunesh on on whether the translators then consult or how much they have access to the to the ilmiya mm-hmm. sometimes we can track it mm-hmm. so if we have a takriya that's been submitted to the the race race of kitab mm-hmm. we will then see the the various scribblings on it that says which office it's been sent to what questions have been made what needs to be done so for certain questions it will say right kapadan pasha this is your territory what do you think what was the situation what's your ruling so sometimes um, we are fortunate enough to to trace that but again this is only from the ottoman documents and the problem with the british ottoman relations historiography is it's largely ignored them so now we can start to gradually build up this picture about about what's going on the question that that that, that you guys both raised about the the knowledge of each other's systems is is really interesting and i think when we look at ottoman subjects be they north african or ottoman empire proper if you like who have to use courts in london or the netherlands they tend not to be successful they tend not to be able to have access to the legal knowledge or customs that will get their case prosecuted successfully however um we see from many examples that british merchants dutch merchants french merchants are able to get their cases done and i think that's because built into the capitulations is a certain degree of um, legal pragmatism 
So, for example, one of the main clauses, one of the earliest clauses, says that um, disputes of a certain amount, so I think it was 3,000 or 4,000 akche, have to be heard at the imperial government with the divan. Now, in the 16th century, that was a lot of money. By the time we get to the 17th and 18th century, that's not very much money at all. That doesn't then mean that every single case is going to be coming from Baghdad or Aleppo or Cairo to Istanbul. It means that only the tricky cases that can't be sorted out at the provincial level get then sent on to, to, the, to the imperial capital. So that shows from that that the Brits and their translators and everyone else involved in this process knows the system and knows how to play it in a way that Ottomans abroad simply are at this point in history unable to do. So I guess this is a this is a good moment to transition. It's talking about your your current research, mm. which is about maritime law and um, ideas of sovereignty at sea. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, this all stems from one element of the of the thesis, which looked, as I mentioned before, at these attacks by British privateers in Ottoman waters or in the east in the Eastern Mediterranean, and the Ottoman response to those attacks. So basically, what I found was between the 1690s and the 1770s, 1780s, the Ottomans develop um, what they call the Shuruto Bahriye, or the Kavaidi Bahriye, the, their rules for the sea. And this essentially means that to stop British and French attacks um, under their cannon or in their harbours or against their ships, they draw a line on a map that says past this line, to the east of this line, no armed ships can come and make attacks. Um, and this was pretty revolutionary um, in terms of um, any maritime law, as far as I'm aware, because um, it's not staking a permanent claim over the sea. It's saying that this is a temporary measure to stop violence against our subjects and against our territory. What's more is that this was successfully prosecuted. So when British ships inevitably ignored this new regulation and did attack, the Ottoman government was able to secure um, financial compensation via the British embassy for those who had been wronged. So this is a pretty solid um, legal regime. What I'm now looking at is kind of the other end of the Mediterranean, um, Ottoman Algiers. Um, and it's really early days with the project. I've, this is kind of like uh, the, the research, very much the research stage. But I'm looking at how in Algiers, which is a very different kind of space because it's in many senses a frontier space they define themselves quite literally as the Darul Jihad this is the abode of war that necessarily means that there are certain constraints to the freedom of movement of all ships um, but I'm also thinking about how within all this the Algerians also create their own kind of commercial space that continues to allow commerce even within um, what is essentially a, a continuous war zone. So it's um, it's mixing the two together. How does an Ottoman or an Algerian, when he's at sea and something gets stolen from him or he gets shipwrecked or he gets into trouble, how does he get compensation? How does he um, find a legal um, solution to his problem? Where does he go? Who does he go to? That's kind of at the heart of, of the project in many ways. So 
as a as somebody who studies maritime history and and the law at sea um, myself, I'm really fascinated by um, this, I guess, the set of relationships that you're describing, and particularly um, this this line mm-hmm. that you're saying um, in your in the Eastern Mediterranean mm-hmm. um, that the that the British were crossing even after the Ottomans drew the line, mm-hmm. and and I'm wondering um, how they envisioned um, or how they actually did enforce. Um, enforce the line, um, given that um, you know making claims on on water is um, is exceedingly difficult, mm-hmm. particularly in the 18th century when um, you know before the um, before the development of tools to accurately measure things like longitude and latitude. We don't we or latitude we can measure, but not longitude. Um, we don't have sort of a, a vision of the sea as a grid where you can clearly demarcate certain points. And so um, I, I'm just very interested in the in, in how the, this law was enforced and and what kinds of legal arguments they made um, when when they found that that it was violated. Yeah, absolutely. The um, the standard the standard um, kind of limit that we find in the Ottoman world is three miles which which is their territorial waters that they generally um claim um the way that they enforce this line is is quite simple they say this is the new border they call it hudud the hudud islamia this is our new border it operates the same as it would do as a land border our law is completely um enforceable beyond this point and the line that they draw um eventually in the 1740s is pretty clear they say between the maria and the coast of libya so literally it's just a straight line down across the whole of the eastern mediterranean this is now our liquid territory how do they then enforce this well if a french ship and there's probably let's give an example there's a french ship 1746 it's bringing some very much needed grain across from uh, tunis um going over towards um syria and they're just passing by um, the island of crete and they get attacked by a british um, privateer who steals all their stuff and dumps them on some rock somewhere. They then go to the nearest Qadi. They haven't got many of their papers because the pirates have taken them all, but they're able to say, look, we registered our goods in this port. Um, we have a list of everything that we that we took. If you'll just make a note of the fact that this has happened to us, we can then go on and make our claim. So they'll get the, the, the proofs from the local Qadi that this has happened. Then they go to Istanbul and they make their claims before the, um, the imperial government. So when they ha- come with this huge mass of documentation, which has survived in the British archives, it was just sitting there, and because it was in Turkish and Italian, no one, no one looked at it. Huge amounts of paperwork um, detailing everything that had got stolen. The British didn't have a leg to stand on. This was clearly Ottoman goods. They had no right to touch it. Um, and um, because it was beyond this border point, the Ottomans had a very strong argument. And the British also realized that if they started doing this to Ottoman subjects and um, um, uh, didn't come up with any compensation, who knows what might start happening to their merchants in the more distant ports. And at various times, so for example, in the in the 1770s, there's attacks by British privateers, not just on commercial ships, but on pilgrim ships that lead to riots in, in places like Cairo and Izmir against British merchants. So it's a dangerous game that they were playing. So the compensation was was very important indeed so i'm i'm curious about um ottoman maritime law 
um, particularly knowing that in the 18th century, the British and the Europeans more broadly have a long tradition of, of legal writings mm-hmm. about, about law at sea, um, particularly Grotius and Selden, mm-hmm. for example. And um, I'm wondering, I suppose, how if the Ottomans have had um, similar debates or different debates about um, if the seas are able to be possessed or not, um, and maybe even how this um, this line that they draw, do they see that as making a claim mm. to possess the sea, um, or is it, or do they still see it as this open space? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, if you think about it rhetorically. Um, one of the main titles of, of the Padishah is that he's the, the ruler of the two lands and the ruler of the two seas. So it's, there's this rhetorical claim to ownership over the white and the black seas. Hakal um, al-Bahrain is, is one of the main titles that's employed. That doesn't mean very much in practice in the Mediterranean. The Black Sea is a completely different um, case in many respects, at least towards the end of the 18th century in terms of the freedom of movement. The Red Sea, again, something completely different. Movement above Jeddah is is generally a no-no for for foreign merchants. Um, So there is this kind of this rhetorical um, and practical background to this. Um, What one then finds is that there's not necessarily a specific corpus of of work like we have in Europe in terms of Grotius or or John Selden or any of those guys. But if we look at the commands and the way that the Ottomans speak about water, it's quite clear that they do have a really um, clear distinction between what their waters are, which they call su, which is literally water, um, and the derya or the bahr, so between that or the engin, achuk engin, the, the open sea. There's a distinction between that. So one of them, the su, is where they have their authority over, the other, the derya, is something that's open, apart from in this unique case where they draw this line and say, just temporarily, this is Ottoman territory for the benefit of our of our subjects. So it's not as easy to find as in Europe in terms of their, their thinking. And indeed, until very recently, I mean, one of the first books that I looked at on this very question, was there an Ottoman theory of maritime law? It was a French book from the early 19th century, and he had this huge tome of all the nations of the world and all their maritime thinking. And on the Ottoman one, it was like a paragraph that said, we know nothing about any of these apart from what the Europeans have gave them. So it's still this sense that just because they haven't written about it in in lots of Latin books, that they didn't have any sense, but clearly they had a very strong sense about um, what sea could be ruled and what sea could not be ruled. And so um, one thing I know um, just from reading a little bit of your work um, is that you're interested in the idea or the question of territoriality mm. at sea. Mm. And um, this is this question of territoriality and territorial sovereignty is one that I'm also very interested in. Um, and, and so I'm curious, um, well, I'd like to talk about this for a while, and I think um, first it would be useful if you could um, just very briefly explain um, how you how you interpret territoriality and how you interpret sovereignty, um, just very basically, um, as you're thinking about this new project. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe we can move forward from that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a um, political geographer called um, David Sack, who, who I've... Robert Sack, sorry, who I, I've looked at quite extensively. And um, 
he basically says if you're going to have territoriality you need, need to be able to do certain things with it you need to have an area that you can name and define it needs to be a definable space it can't just be the middle of the ocean because there's nothing to define it so it needs to be a definable space secondly it needs to be something that you can control actively so if you have a warship that's wandering around in the middle of the sea you can control that tiny bit of the sea temporarily but that's not real control because it's only temporary you have to have a real presence there um, and thirdly you have to be able to extend your legal authority over that space so it has to be somewhere that's definable controllable and able um, for you able to have your, your um, authority asserted over it so for me thinking about the Ottoman and, and now the North African case is exactly that where is this space how do they define it um, how do they then control it and how do they assert their legal authority over it so I have a question about that definition and the establishment of this line that could not be passed if if a ship is in the open sea but across that line mm -hmm. how do they refer to the geography of the area is there any way to do it if they're in the open sea if they're out of sight of an island absolutely and you you're, you hit exactly the problem for the for the british mariners and of course the headache for the british embassy if you're just sailing from tunis you don't know whether you've crossed between syria uh, uh, libya or or moria um, exactly in many ways then it's a real deterrent because you don't want to take the risk that you may or may not be over that line or not but yeah navigation here is, is and, I, and i always think about this we, we can discuss quite casually travel in the 17th and 18th century but it's a huge and dangerous undertaking and you can imagine these sailors going even if the mediterranean's calm it's still a huge physical um, effort and a huge time-consuming effort to, to make these sorts of journeys so when we're talking about traveling in the open sea that's they're going to be having other things on their mind other than oh have we passed the moria yet and do you have a sense of how this is connected to map making technologies at all i must confess that's not something that's really my um um area obviously something i would like to know more about and that interests me greatly um i have looked at several pilots manuals for example from the 18th century they're still very much coastal based so they'll say follow the coast this many degrees then turn off until you see this so as my understanding from the eastern mediterranean at least particularly in the northern part where you do have lots of islands to navigate around is that um, coastal spaces are much more important for navigating that's absolutely true in the 18th century yeah not just in the mediterranean but in in the atlantic as well um and i'm sure in, in the other bodies of water and it's because of this problem of measuring longitude that it's not until the middle of the 18th century that there's the development of a of a timepiece that can keep reliable time at sea. And if you can't calculate the time, then you can't figure out how, um, like wh what your longitude is basically, because you need to be able to calculate the difference between the time in your present location and the time at the prime meridian. Um, and so because of that, Navigation was basically a question of triangulation once you got in, in vision of, um, of a coast or a, a lighthouse or, or something like that. Could I perhaps ask Gunish something to just sure, weigh in on yeah. this? Because you've done stuff on the Black Sea, haven't you? A while ago. A while ago, but it was, it was rather on the... If the Ottoman assertion of total sovereignty on Black Sea yeah. was a rhetorical or effective... And in my mind, it was rather rhetorical and not effective, especially when it comes to the control of the Eastern Black Sea and the pirating and pirateers 
of Abkhazia, Mingrelia, etc., and the Ottomans were quite negligent on their their activities, since these activities were were very local and had not real impact on the security of the capitals. Uh, nearest shores but i have another question on this seas and ottomans perceptions of seas or question that i asked to myself as well on the what was the case in the persian gulf mm. when there were so many other uh, political entities and and for the adriatic sea where the where there is at least four four major powers mm. who have uh, some claims either on the western shore or the eastern shore but perhaps it was much more easier but when it comes to the northern shores of the adriatic sea what and where there's a strong privateering activity either from the sides of the Habsburgs mm-hmm. and as you know from the ottoman side and if the issue of control of the seas were at stake mm-hmm. when there were some uh, disputes which which were highly diplomatical in the sense that two or three powers were on uh, on the discussion level. I think this is a really important point. And if we think about the wealth of literature on the Ottoman Habsburg frontier on land, it's kind of surprising that there isn't such a, a degree of study into the sea. I think this is readily explained by the fact that you can understand the land and you can't understand the sea. The sea is vast and blue and wobbly and indecipherable whereas you can look at the land and see that the Habsburgs have taken this mountain range or gone through this town um, but yeah there's the comparative element I think is going to be hugely important for us mm-hmm. in the long term thinking about this in the Persian Gulf as you say is really really crucial in that absolutely I would add here that friend of the podcast Faisal Hussein has a an article out in environmental history uh, from late last year that's about uh the Arab tribes that lived in the marshes mm. um, in Iraq. Um, and he has a wonderful letter from the Grand Vizier to the head of a recalcitrant recalcitrant tribe uh, in which the Grand Vizier uh, calls the Sultan the lord of the water and the mud. Ooh, like that. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful phrase, um, <laughs> but it speaks to this uh, particular marsh ecology where... It's on land, but it's unclear where the boundary line with the water quite exists. And this definitely, and you think it's not—you've not just got those. You've got like in a, in inland lakes and rivers. I mean, all these kind of inner bodies of water that that we really need don't know much about in terms of sovereignty and claims over and things like that. Also, one thing that that I think about a lot in my own research too is um, to be careful about the distinction that we make between land and water Mm -hmm. um, because certainly there are certain types of um, geological formations on on land that are that are difficult to exert legal control over, and actually, um, Michael Polchinski and I mm-hmm. did a podcast about this um, a few months ago, where we talked about the Atlantic Ocean and the Eurasian Steppe, mm-hmm. and um, how um, you know Michael talked much more eloquently than I can right now about uh, the difficulty of of knowing and. Um, let alone enforcing law over over the step, um, 
And so I wonder maybe if you if you see um, any any reference to these sorts of places, um, these um, kind of seas on land, mm. so to speak, uh, maybe mountains, forests, deserts. Mm. Um, and if if you encounter um, any discussion of law in these spaces, mm. when you're also looking to um, theories of law at sea. Mm. That's a really interesting point. And it's definitely something that I want to consider in, in much more detail. Obviously, the constraints of, of research time limit my, my scope. But one of the things that I was thinking about, particularly with regards to the issue of this maritime line, was it's not a coincidence that at the same time that they're drawing lines on the sea is the same time that they're starting to really solidify the borders on land and to have border commissions, particularly with the Habsburgs. And there you have some really interesting drawings and sketches that then accompany treaties. So Sistova, for example, the Treaty of Sistova with the Habsburgs, there's a whole series of appendices that are sketches from the Border Commission where they've walked along the rivers, they've gone through the mountain passes, they've navigated through the forests, drawing this borderline. What does that then mean in practice is something completely different. Um, and there's this temptation, particularly going towards the end of the 18th century, that these borders that were once fluid in inverted commas now become become solid. And I think that's a real big problem um, in, in terms of our understanding of the navigation between different polities and so forth. Um, and especially when we have so many of these natural barriers that you mentioned, there are significant mountain ranges within um, the Ottoman Empire itself. I mean, Emily Neumeyer, for example, doing this wonderful research on um, Ali Pasha in, um, in Yanya and all the, if you look at the landscape there, it's not surprising that he's autonomous because it's surrounded by these huge mountain ranges with limited passes into it. If we look at places like northern Palestine in the 18th century where you have all these autonomous rulers, again, they have the geography in their favour. So we need to think about these internal spaces as well. You're quite right, absolutely. Opposition, not an opposition, but another opinion. It's rather because the question, yes, Metaphorically, that's fine to see the desert as a as a sea, etc. It's quite poetical. But on the other hand, I think these either the Ottomans or their adversary adversaries were rather reflecting upon some juridical points on possession and property, mm. and these I think, but if the and the, these questions are. I think more convenient, not convenient, but more regular on the debates between the Ottomans and the Persians, because it's a very huge line between the two countries, which which separates one from the other, and there the rivers, sometimes the lake, uh, constitutes uh, the barrier, and uh, I think from there we can get some idea on the on the one hand on the idea of rivers and lakes etc but for the i think these uh, deserts and the other uh, non uncultivated lands uh, there is i think a huge literature already in the ottoman uh, jurisprudential literature so i think we can have may maybe uh, some insights on how would an Ottoman think about the, I don't know, the differences between possession and from the property 
and them to which what belongs to one side and what mm. belongs to the other, etc. But it's just an hypothesis. I w- so I just want to take a moment to go back to our discussion about territory territoriality at sea and the definition of territoriality that you gave by SAC. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the aspect of his definition that that said um, it's the ability to enforce law. Mm-hmm. And um, when you know the, it seems like the stories that you've been telling us. Um, what's so interesting about them is that we see two different legal cultures, two different legal systems coming against each other and um, trying to resolve conflicts, um, you know, while, while they're doing commerce and, and diplomacy. And, and so I'm curious um, when we're, when we're thinking about, um, you know, who see the, the Western Mediterranean is, or the Eastern Mediterranean for that matter, when we're talking about the, the line that you described, um, how, how would you interpret this, the, who has legal jurisdiction in the sea um, when, um, when, you know, sometimes a, a ship might be sent to the British, an Ottoman ship might be sent to British Admiralty Court, or it might go to the Ottoman court. Yeah. Um, how, how do you see these two competing legal systems um, influencing commerce in the region? This is part of the mess that I'm trying to uh, wade through. I mean, the Western Mediterranean is particularly interesting in terms of authority and control because the Alger- the Algerian authorities into their treaties with European powers give themselves wide-ranging powers pretty much on all seas anywhere in the world to search... Um, British or French or Dutch ships or Tuscan ships for enemies and for enemies' goods. So you could be in the middle of the Atlantic and if you happen to bump into an Algerian ship, they have a legal right to search you. That then brings into a huge question as as to where are the limits of Algerian um, territorial authority over, over the waters. In terms of the two systems kind of competing against each other, it gets really complicated when we think about um, subjects from the Ottoman realms themselves. Um, so the, one of the cases um, that I've been looking at in the past couple of months is an Ottoman Greek who's the main commercial agent for the day of Algiers. So he's in charge of buying and selling grain for Algiers. He buys this grain from all over the place, from Morocco, from Ragusa, and he uses European ships, mainly Dutch and French, to charter it. On no less than three occasions, this poor, unfortunate chap gets into various sorts of trouble. One time a Spanish privateer takes his staff, another time he gets shipwrecked, another time his business partner cheats him out of his goods. Where does he then go? So he goes to Algiers, and the day makes a complaint to the consuls. And the consuls say, nothing to do with us, didn't happen in your territory, you have to go and sort it out with our authorities. So then essentially these poor, this poor individual spends the rest of his days going between... Algiers and Istanbul and London and the Netherlands trying to find a court that will accept his proofs, that will accept his arguments without any success. So this one example, and it's a fairly common example, um, shows us that far from having two competing legal regimes, you have one European legal regime that just isn't interested 
in hearing the arguments, the legal arguments of someone who's not their subjects or someone who doesn't have a representative in their country. And I think this is the point where the lack of bilateral diplomacy on the part of the Ottomans and indeed the North African regencies really um, comes to the fore because an Ottoman subject doesn't have an ambassador in London or in, or in The Hague to complain to. And this again with the increased attacks in the Mediterranean in the 1780s um, and 90s, this is probably one of the main reasons why the Ottomans begin to start thinking about establishing permanent residencies. And it's not a coincidence that London is the first one because that's where most of the disputes are going to. So, so that's fascinating that the that the Ottomans didn't participate in bilateral diplomacy. You're saying through through the 18th century, um, and that this um, this problem of of law at sea is one of the things that prompted them to begin sending ambassadors to European states. Um, what was the reason um, that in the earlier period they weren't sending ambassadors abroad? There's a whole variety of, of theories on this matter, um, ranging from financial constraints to a lack of desire to send good Muslims to live in the land of the infidel on a permanent basis and all this sort of thing. Um, in one respect, it doesn't suit the Ottoman self-image. If you are the um, world holder, which is one of the titles of the Sultan, then it's up to other people to send their ambassadors to you and not the other way around. Um, this kind of idea of universalist monarchy is still pretty strong um, into the um, 18th century. On a more practical level, um, there wasn't necessarily such a need. There isn't an awful lot of Ottoman subjects residing in a permanent basis in London or Paris until the end of the 18th century. By the time the first Ottoman ambassador arrives in, in London in um, the 1790s, there's already a pretty sizable colony of, of Ottoman Greeks and Ottoman Muslim merchants in the ports and in, and in London. So he has a reason to be there. Um, when they do have closer relations or more regular relations with people, for example, the Habsburgs or the Russians, there is a much more regular um, sending of, of ad hoc ambassadors. Um, but for these more distant powers, the Swedes, the Brits, the French, it's not until there's a real need to have someone resident there that they actually send one. The, tradi the traditional answer that's given to that question is always, oh, well, it's the Napoleonic Wars and the Ottomans want to know what's going on and um, they want to have their voice heard. Well, they've done that pretty successfully for the past uh, few hundred years without the need for that. So I don't find that necessarily a very satisfying answer. The Napoleon explains it all. Indeed. <laughs> In order to develop the reasons why the Ottomans had not sent envoys and agents, etc., I think there's another framework on the... It was, it was quite... I, I think Michael is quite... is right on what he when he distinguishes between the uh, immediate neighbors and the distant uh, countries in, in, the, in the frontier level from the 15th century on, in as much as there were acknowledged frontiers and sometimes boundaries, there was, there was a regular diplomatic action in the frontiers by the uh, Ottoman frontier authority, so if it's the case in Hungary, it's the uh, governor general of uh, Buda, Buda, if it's the, if it's the relations with the Poland, it was the either the Sanjak Bey, so the governor of uh, Kili or Akerman or Silistre sometimes, when it's the relations with the Iran, it was 
especially the governor general of Erzurum, who was in and if Venice the cases with the Veni, Veni Republic of Venice, it was the uh, governor general of Bosnia who was in quite regular contact. So I, I could have established for the third quarter of the 16th century uh, ongoing uh, correspondence, which can on a monthly basis or so. So I think that already. Um, uh draw back the necessity to have a have a permanent embassy in the in the front in the, the near frontiers and when it, when it's the case for the french uh, english or dutch and later swedish danish etc cases i think the most uh, prominent uh, reason was this absence of uh, necessity so i think michael is exact on the on his answer <laughs> so it seems like throughout our conversation today um, the the question of commerce um, has come up again and again whether we're discussing um, questions of sovereignty questions of diplomacy questions of legal disputes um, commerce is, is at the heart of it all commerce is um, you know um, I guess um, the the impetus for relationships between the British and the Ottomans um, in the case of the British embassy in the Ottoman Empire we see commerce acting as the state more or less um, in terms of representing British diplomatic interests abroad um, and we see that these these the laws that that you're so interested in um, de develop to adjudicate conflicts um, during commerce, um, or conflicts that, that occurred or arose during commerce. Um, and I mean, you know, as, um, you know, somebody who also works on early modern history, um, I find that I'm, you know, often sort of confronted with this question of, um, you know, why are the things that you study still relevant? Why do they matter today? And, you know, as, um, you know, we're, we're talking right now about um, these very intimate relationships between commerce and government and law and diplomacy. In the early modern period, um, we only need to look at, um, you know, the, the current global situation, politics within the EU, particularly at the moment, um, to to see how these relationships that um, you so carefully explored in the early modern Ottoman Empire and are are still with us and we're still sort of grappling with um, similar similar relationships and the consequences that that they bring for us um, so really thank you for giving me a, an answer the next time somebody asks me why it's important to study the early modern period I'm <laughs> very grateful for that <laughs> and and thank you also so much for for being here with us today thank you so um so michael has very kindly put together a a bibliography of um, of some important books and articles for you to look at if you want to continue thinking about 
the topic we've discussed today. And you can find that on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. So thank you for listening to this most recent installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time.